Welcome and happy President's Day to everyone. Delighted, uh, can't tell you how delighted, in fact, I am to welcome Professor John P. Diggins uh, to Princeton. I'm Robert George. I'm the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is hosting today's uh, lecture as part of our Alpheus T. Mason Lecture Series in Constitutional Law and Political Thought. This lecture is made possible by John P. Hansel, class of 46, a devoted student of the late Alpheus T. Mason and a wonderful benefactor of Princeton and the Madison program. We're so pleased to celebrate President's Day with Professor Diggins, who will be speaking with us about the legacy of John Adams. He'll be drawing on his recent book about John Adams. Uh, Dr. Diggins is Distinguished Professor of the Graduate Center at uh, City University of New York and a noted American historian. He is a scholar, it must also be said, with the industrial spirit of the American founders, uh, who has signed copies of his recent book on Adams that are now currently available at Macabre's uh, bookstore, which I believe is on Nassau Street. Uh, his other publications include Max Weber, Politics and the Spirit of Tragedy, which was published by Basic Books in 1996. The Promise of Pragmatism, Modernity and the Critics of Knowledge and Authority, published by the University of Chicago in 1994. Rise and Fall of the American Left, published by Norton in 1992. The Proud Decades, American, uh, American War and Peace, 1941 to 1960, which was published by Norton in 1988. And The Lost Soul of American Politics, Virtue, Self-Interest, and the Foundations of Liberalism, published also by Basic Books in 19. 84, and as I already said, more books, or at least another book, uh, on the way. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Professor John P. Diggins. Thank you for that generous introduction, Professor George. Um, it's fitting to be invited here to Princeton. Um, to talk on John Adams because John Adams not only did not go to Princeton, but James Madison, who did, had no use for John Adams. <laughs> um, and um, this is President's Day, and it's usually in regard to uh, three presidents, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. Uh, but there's another birthday today I'd like to remind people of a old citizen of the town of Princeton, who was associated with the Institute for Advanced Study, who was the founding father of the Doctrine of Containment, uh, a policy that uh, depended upon working with the United Nations, acting multilaterally, and regarding Europe as an indispensable ally. It was a policy that worked successfully for 40 years, and it helped bring the Cold War, the dangerous Cold War, to a peaceful end. Today um, is his 100th birthday, and this is George Kennan that I salute. <clears throat> now, I think of Kennan when I think of John Adams because um, uh, America faced a policy situation in the 1950s and again in the 1980s that Adams and George Washington faced in the 1790s, and that is the decision whether or not to go to war. With, in recent times, it was whether or not to go to war with Soviet Russia as a revolutionary regime. And in the 1790s, it was whether or not to go to war with revolutionary France. Um, um, 
And uh, Washington and Adams resisted the demand to go to war, and the demand came from their own party, the Federalist Party. It was articulated by Alexander Hamilton. Um, and when Vice President Adams becomes president and resists um, embarking upon war against France, he loses the election because Hamilton turns the vote in New York against him and sides with the Jeffersonian Republicans. But Adams wrote a letter to Abigail saying, in so, so many words, a profound bit of advice. He said, <clears throat> great is the disgrace of an unnecessary war. Great is the disgrace of an unnecessary war. And had America gone to war with France, within six months, America would be facing Napoleon who had signed a treaty with England so there'd be no force of protecting the colonies against Napoleon's armies. It was one of the great decisions, I think, made, but Adams is not given credit for that. Um, it's easier to go to war and enjoy the popularity than to stay out of war. Now, there have been four charges made against Adams, which I want to begin my paper by addressing. Um, all that worked to his disadvantage that was believed in his time, it's still believed today. One was that he was a monarchist, a closet monarchist, or in those days called a monocrat. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, this was leveled by Jefferson and the Southern Republicans, and they argued that John Adams was grooming his son, John Quincy, to succeed him, and America was moving toward an hereditary monarchy. Washington did not have any sons, so there was no problem of Washington turn, turning power over to his own family. But this became an alarm on the part of the Republicans, and it was used in the election of 1800. Adams brought some of this suspicion upon himself because when he was vice president, he did fool around with titles and rituals, and, he, and when he first... Um, held office, he wondered how to address George Washington, whether to call him His Excellency, His Highness, and he believed in formalities um, and titles, and for that he was criticized as wanting to bring to America the monarchical traditions of old England. And then, too, his writings, um, according to his critics, had monarchical tendencies because he advocated a strong executive, and that was regarded as the what the skeptics call the fetus of monarchy. And he advocated uh, a separate house, upper house chamber, a senate, and that was regarded as the rule of aristocracy. <clears throat> but the, the burden of my book is to examine closely his writings and say there's not an iota of evidence in there to, uh, to suggest that he's advocating either the rule of aristocracy or monarchy. And in fact, in 18... 16, in a letter to Jefferson, Adams challenges Jefferson to go through his writings and prove that there is anything in the writings that advocate hereditary monarchy. And Jefferson, of course, doesn't take up the challenge because the damage had already been done. Jefferson had won the election in 1800. Um, he was the first to instigate a politics of accusation and suspicion, which has stayed with us ever since. Um, and Adams had no response to it because people were not about to stop and read three volumes of writings to prove whether the charges were true or not. The second charge made against John Adams was that he was an elitist. 
Now, if by elitism one means the rule of the superior few over the democratic many, um, and if um, one were to say that you believe in that as something that's desirable, or if you say you think that's something we have to watch out for because it's inevitable, it's the latter category that would categorize John Adams. He believed that the few would dominate, and it's precisely because they would dominate that they had to be watched out for. And he felt that the place for the um, what Alexander Hamilton called the rich, well-born, and able should be in the Senate, where they would be separated from the lower house, and they would be able to—they would not be able to um, exploit and manipulate uh, the lesser able members in the lower body of Congress. <clears throat> Um, another charge that's been made, not just with Adams, but almost every person in the early American history, is that he was a racist. Now, um, there's one instance of Adams where he does issue a racial utterance, and that is when he's defending the British soldiers after the Boston Tea Party. Um, and uh, not the Boston Tea Party, the um, Boston Massacre, excuse me, when um, uh, a, a Youths are shot down by British soldiers, and uh, the British soldiers are put on trial. Um, and then Adams tries to get them off on defense, of, on self-protection, and they were taunted by um, these people in the streets. And Adams describes who the people on the streets were, and they were, he says, drunken sailors, jack tars, <clears throat> uh, menacing mulattoes, and Irish teagues. I had to go look that up. It means pigs, Irish pigs. So, I mean, he, he uttered a racial utterance, but we were all included in it. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and he did, he did get the British soldiers off. Um, um, but there wasn't much racism in his thinking or his practice. He belonged to the American Abolition Society. His wife, Abigail, prevailed upon the town of Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, to admit a black youth to an all-white grammar school. And then there's the episode of Haiti, the revolution in Haiti, and uh, with Toussaint Louverture, a black slave rising up and um, resisting French rule, declaring the freedom of former slaves. Um, and Adams and his Secretary of State, James Pickering, recognized the Haitian uprising. Uh, but when Adams is voted out of office in 1800 and Jefferson comes in, he sides with uh, Napoleon to crush uh, the Haitians. And Jefferson even says, we can teach you how to starve them to death. <clears throat> um, and this is um, one of the paradoxes of early American intellectual history is those people who believed in equality or professed to believe in it, such as Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, um, were pro-slavery. Whereas those who were critical of equality, such as Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, were critical of slavery. And in fact, Adams, Hamilton even advocated arming blacks during the American Revolution. Um, the fourth charge uh, made against um, Adams was that he, he was a snob. Not only was he a monarchist, um, an elitist, a racist, but he was a snobbist. Um, this was asked of me. Uh, uh, when I gave a talk in the Library of Congress, wasn't John Adams a snob? And I, <laughs> I didn't know what a definition of a snob is, but I just want to read you a letter of his to his grandchildren, and you can judge for yourself whether this comes from the mind of a snob. 
Your letter touches my heart. Oh, that I may always be able to say to my grandsons, you have learned much and behave well, my lads. Go on and improve at everything worthy. Have you considered the meaning of that word worthy? Weigh it well. I had rather you should be worthy possessors of 1,000 pounds honestly acquired by your own labor and industry than of 10 millions by banks and tricks. I should rather you be worthy shoemakers than secretaries of states or treasury acquired by libels and newspapers. I had rather you be worthy makers of brooms and baskets than unworthy presidents of the United States procured by intrigue, factious slander, and corruption. Now, some presidents leave the executive office in fame and glory, uh, fame and glory, others in shame and disgrace. Adams left in silence and darkness at four in the morning, the day his successor, Jefferson, was sworn in. Um, we don't know that in those days there was no protocol for what the outgoing president was supposed to do. Today, he's supposed to ride down Pennsylvania Avenue and attend the reception. But we don't even know to this day where the Adams was extended an invitation for the inaugural ball. Um, nonetheless, Adams left as he entered the presidency, perhaps the finest mind ever to be elected to the highest office of the land. Was he then a great president? Bad times make good presidents and worse times great ones. Whatever challenges leaders strengthens them, and a true leader is a born enemy of complacency one who thrives in a crisis. But normal times without a severe economic depression arouse little concern among the American people. And people are more confused than convinced when they find their country fighting a war militarily that Congress has yet to declare politically. With France in 1798, with Mexico in 1848, North Korea 1950, Vietnam 1966. Perversely, the best moments redounding to the popularity of a presidency um, is when America is attacked. Fort Sumter, 1861, the Maine, <clears throat> 1898, Lewisitania, 1916, Pearl Harbor, 1941, the World Trade Center, 2001. Short of historical drama, <clears throat> um, the presidency is like an act without a role or script, and the people in audience viewing a play without plot or or purpose, a performance lacking tension, conflict, tragedy, and resolution. Such was the situation faced by John Adams, the second president of the United States, who served during the formative years of the Young Republic, uh, 1797 to 1801, long after the revolution had been gloriously fought and the Constitution wisely established. The late 1790s became a time in history when leaders were asked to manage government rather than to make history. Thus, Adams' brief four years in office seemed to stand out as a pathetic parenthesis, a case of character constrained by circumstance. Coming to the presidency after George Washington and followed by Thomas Jefferson, two towering figures who started the Virginia dynasty, later um, carried on by James Madison, James Madison and James Monroe, 
Adams was the only one of the first presidents to serve a single term in the executive office. Andrew Jackson, another senator who identified with Jefferson, also served for a successful two terms, 1829 to 1837, after defeating John Quincy Adams, who, like his father, left after only one term, 1825 to 1829. Now, um, there's not that much to talk about during uh, in the Adams presidency. Um, it was a period when political parties were just coming into existence, but no one knew what to make of them. It was a period, period of great intense um, bitterness, suspicion, um, antagonism, and conflict. Um, Joanne Freeman of Yale University has written about this. Uh, she points out it was an age of a great deal of dueling. People were always going after one another in shootouts. Um, and uh, uh, party politics became very personal and divided families. Um, Adams was not, uh, he wasn't prepared for it, for handling parties and, 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 and politics as we know it today. Uh, the two events of his uh, administration were the Alien Sedition Acts, was, which he was not really behind, although as president he signed them into law, um, <clears throat> and the bringing to an end of what was called a quasi-war with France, a war that took place on the high seas, mainly a naval engagement. Um, so what I would like to do for the remainder of the talk is talk about Adams as a thinker, um, as a political philosopher, um, he's one of the great figures in American history that, uh, that served in the White House as a president but can also be taught in a course in American intellectual history. You can say that about many of the founding fathers and then you have to move to the mid-19th century to bring in Abraham Lincoln. Then after Lincoln, it's, it's, a, it's a black hole. Um, uh, <laughs> until you get to Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And as some of you know, Wilson was the last president to write his own speeches. And then after that, it's all spin. I mean, you can't, that, that is, you can't make much out of it in terms of political philosophy and intellectual history um, after uh, the progressives, Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Um, and um, uh, what I'd like to talk about is how John Adams responds to the French Revolution. And this is what divided him with his opponents in the South, with the Republicans, with Jeff Jeffersonians, and with people like Tom Paine, who espoused the French Revolution. Um, um, when, when the um, revolution broke out, uh, there was a great deal of support for it on the part of many Americans. But then when it moved toward the stage of terror and the guillotine, uh, America grew divided, with the North, the Federalists, becoming critical of the revolution, and the Southerners, um, uh, Southern Republicans like Jefferson and others, supporting the French Revolution. Um, and then when the American Constitution was established and it was publicized in France, the French were very critical about why we had all these checks and balances and all these controlling mechanisms. Um, the French argued that we do not have social classes in America, uh, we did not have the constituencies of the old world, so why did we have all these mechanisms to control uh, power? Um, and um, uh, 
the French look highly upon Ben Franklin and his advocacy of a unicameral legislature in Pennsylvania. That is no upper house and lower house, just a single chamber. Uh, that would be more close to the will of the people, more direct democracy. Um, and like Jefferson and Payne, the French were convinced that if their own revolution adopted Adams' scheme of all these mechanisms, the old aristocratic order would remain in power. Condorcet, the philosopher, a former friend of Adams, insisted that America was trying to tell France what to do without realizing that the French, unlike the Americans, had to declare their rights before they possessed them. In truth, America really never had a revolution. Now, if uh, there are certain professors here from the Princeton History Department, they would probably challenge me on that. But, um, but in the sense that they, 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 America never had to fight on an ancien regime. It never had to fight an aristocracy. There was no force in America trying to return to the old order. Um, um, as Tocqueville learned when he visited America, he was astounded to find, as he talked to Americans up and down the Hudson Valley, that they said all classes fought on the same side. This is really unusual in a revolution, that all classes, the, the rich and the middle class and the poor, fought on the same side during the revolution. But France had to rid itself of older political structures to make the way for the regeneration of society. And what made possible the hope of regeneration was the powerful promise of reason Indeed, the French looked at the American Revolution itself as a triumph of wisdom over, quote, prejudice, dogma, and superstition. And the successful outcome of the struggle had paved the way for, quote, liberty, virtue, and reason. Adams may have, may have agreed about liberty, but he was not altogether sure that the American Revolution met the test of reason and virtue. Um, and... Um, what I'm going to list to you now and, and go over rather briefly, I, I regard as the um, as Adams's response to the Enlightenment, to the French Radical Enlightenment, uh, what we might call the Counter Enlightenment, and these are his ten theses. Um, first, the role of reason. Adams doubted that reason played that important a role in history. Um, he drew upon the Scottish philosopher David Hume to be informed that the mind is slave to passion, and thus he doubted that the authority of political institutions could rely upon the rational nature of its citizenry. Um, and then he scrutinized and scoured the annals of history going all the way back to Plato's Republic to see in what instances that reason uh, prevailed in discourse and in civil affairs. Um, what stood in the way of reason was sin original sin, which distorted the uh, possibilities of the human mind grasping reality as it actually is. He says, in the institution of government, it must be remembered that although reason ought to govern individuals, it certainly never did since the fall and never will till a millennium. And human nature must be taken as it is, as it has been, as it will be. The second thesis is the premise of the promise of virtue. Um, this became a big idea in American scholarship about 20 years ago. It was called classical republicanism. And, um, uh, and virtue connotated um, self-restraint, uh, overcoming temptation, uh, uh, overcoming what philosophers call self-love, what religious people call sin, and renouncing all this uh, for the public good. 
Adams doubted not only that we could not uh, rely upon virtue in the present, but he went through the past in his book, Defense of the Constitutions, uh, a three-volume book, and he studied the past and said virtue never even governed in the past. Only writers and intellectuals think it existed. Uh, but I'm going to return to this when I show we, how he examines uh, language. Um, he says, if the absence of avarice is necessary to Republican virtue, can you find any age or country in which Republican virtue has existed? Um, the third thesis is liberty as power. Now, during the Revolution and afterwards, there was this sense that liberty and power are incompatible. Uh, power was that which existed independently of your will and threatened you, and liberty was that which uh, you owned and exercised on your own. Adams, as did Hamilton, had to convince the colonists there's no incompatibility between liberty and power, and that liberty itself is indeed power because you're only free if you have efficacy, if you have the capacity to act and make a difference. Um, and yet, um, liberty had to be subordinated to law, uh, and this is where Adams uh, um, disagrees with Jefferson, who was against a strong state and the powerful rule of law of the Supreme Court. The fourth thesis is liberty and property. In the 18th century, it was commonly assumed that liberty and property were synonymous and that power followed property. No one, not even severe critics of the Constitution, not even Tom Paine, who would become a hero to later generations of Americans, including the conservative Ronald Reagan and the Marxist historian Eric Foner, they both extolled Tom Paine. Um, but he did not question um, the premise that property provided the foundation of liberty. But in the French Revolution, certain thinkers emerged who did. One, Gracos Bobouf, um, anticipated Karl Marx's communism and calling for the abolition of property. And a friend of Madison, a friend of Adams, Gab Gabriel Bonad de Mably, um, claimed that the desire for wealth arose from envy and avarice born in situations of scarcity and equality. Now, American thinkers do not really deal with the idea of property. In the Federalist Papers, it's regarded as the first object of government in terms of protection. But Hamilton and Madison did not really go into a philosophical rationale uh, behind property. Um, and in the Declaration, um, Jefferson substitutes happiness for property. Um, yet in the Lockean tradition, it was assumed that property arises from human beings adding value to natural objects by means of their own labor. And because labor is essential to the preservation of life, uh, each and every person is entitled to the products of their work. Um, in American history, as far as I can see, only Abraham Lincoln really worked out a theory of labor value. Adams, John Adams did not. Um, on the contrary, he seems closer to Scottish thinkers and seeing property as a social convention that deserves protection in the name of social order. Um, the Frenchman Mably may be right to say that the masses envy the possession of others, but that is all the more reason to guard against, quote, the idle from usurping the industrious and bringing about a stage of debauchery and anarchy. And Adams starts, I won't go into this long quote, but he starts talking about the, um, the indolence of human beings. And I find this amazing because Adams failed to see, as did many of the founding fathers, what later we call the Protestant ethic. 
Um, it was a German thinker, Max Weber, who made us aware that the early colonists, particularly the Calvinists, believed in hard work and duty and thrift, uh, and they laid the basis of capitalism. Uh, <clears throat> but the founding fathers, their fears of conflict were based on, the, on the, the, the assumed danger that the lower classes would threaten the property holdings of the upper classes because the lower classes had no um, commitment to hard work and propriety. The fifth thesis is the inevitability of classes. Um, now, the French critics, as I mentioned, uh, were bewildered that Americans would create all these checks and balances in a country um, that had no aristocracy, no peasantry, no proletariat, no socialists trying to radicalize uh, the revolution or royalists trying to stage a counter-revolution and restore the old order. Um, but Adams' original contribution uh, and I'll just move briefly through this, is to say that um, classes do not arise from class systems. They arise from human emotions. Um, and uh, it's the deeper structure of human emotions and anxieties. For example, competitive rivalry um, and the fear of being shunned and the yearning for distinction, which means that society would never attain unanimity, but only degrees of differences and variations of styles of life. We are told that the, our friends in the National Assembly of France, scoffed Adams, have abolished all distinctions. But do not be deceived, my dear countrymen. Impossibilities cannot be performed. Have they leveled all fortune and equally divided all property? Have they made all men equal and women equally elegant, wise, and beautiful? Have they blotted out all memories, the names, places of abode, and the illustrious actions of their ancestors? <clears throat> um, um, so Adams believed that we will have classes, um, and um, uh, there's a certain historian, I won't mention his name, who says, and this historian one time abided by Marxism and believed all history is history of class conflict, and he grew up to find out that wasn't the case, and now he chides John Adams for believing it. But, but Adams is not believing in class, the existence of classes and class conflict in a Marxist sense, but in a sense that classes are there and they will dominate. It's class domination that he feared. He feared what Alexander Hamilton trusted, that is the rule of the rich, well-born, and able. <clears throat> this brings me to thesis six, that's commerce and corruption. The French Enlightenment, to the extent that it followed Jean-Jacques Rousseau, regarded civic virtue as incompatible with commerce. And they saw as the mission of classical republicanism the unswerving resistance to the coming of bourgeois society. But Adams drew upon thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment who were less interested in showing how political virtue is to be sustained and explaining how wealth is to be created and liberty preserved in an emergent market economy. David Hume and Adam Smith saw self-interest as a healthy motive of human action. The pursuit of wealth, rather than corrupting character, emancipated human beings from natural scarcity and thereby enlarged the possibility of human freedom. Um, now, Adams uh, subscribes to this, but unlike Adam Smith, and others, he's worried about what he called the mania for money. And that's a theme I want to return to in my conclusion because I think it brings us up to the present time. <clears throat> the seventh thesis is I call the society and the spectacle, the spectatorial. Although Adams was formerly a political philosopher, basically he was concerned about society and social relations. And his writings represent what might be called the sociological turn in political theory. 
For all its emphasis on the structure of government, it was the tendencies and traits of society and culture that concerned him as well. Here, his thoughts anticipate certain contemporary French thinkers, such as René Girard, Pierre Bordeaux, and Gilles Deleuze, as well as our own Thorstein Veblen. Adams' book, Discourses on Deville, criticizes Western thought for regarding humankind as a political animal in Aristotle's expression, when he or she really is a social creature. The text cites Shakespeare to suggest how the play of power is caught up with the performance in society. Not only Trollus and Cressida, but many other Shakespeare's political plays deal with the inevitability of class distinction and the ineluctability of power um, as life becomes a delicate balance of forces. <clears throat> Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. <clears throat> Shakespeare affirmed what Adam suspected um, human nature, human behavior remains the same, whether characters <coughs> live either under a monarchy or a republic. <clears throat> human relations would also turn on what is observed rather than what is known. What you see is what you get. Century earlier, centuries earlier, Machiavelli anticipated this spectatorial turn, wherein the visual replaced any vestige of the intellectual. Quote, men on the whole judge with their eyes, wrote Machiavelli. Adam's sensitivity to the spectatorial dimension of politics is as prescient as it is original. In older Christian outlook, anything involving the spirit could not be seen, and thus was, one must trust the word. Even during the Enlightenment, Enlightenment, the printed page was regarded as more reliable than seeing and gazing, which benefited art and the theater, whereas politics remained a matter of pen and tongue, exercises that required reflections of the mind. In discourses on De Villa, however, we are in the world that Shakespeare put on the stage, what our contemporary theories call the society of the spectacle. Although Adams was a president of the pen, he anticipated that modern politics would be about visual performances and images and what people watch and when people watch television debates, the eye would replace the mind as seeing becomes believing. The eighth thesis, language and its discontents. Excuse me, language and its deconstruction. The eighth thesis, language and its deconstruction. This is another way in which Adams turns out to be so prescient um, is his grasp of the complexities and duplicity of language. Now, tech, traditionally it was assumed that language is a transparent medium that grasp reality as it really is, <clears throat> unmediated and undistorted. In this respect, the mind has a capacity to mirror nature and to penetrate to the truth of things. Centuries ago, Adams turned such assumptions upside down. In his defense, Adams devotes considerable space to Machiavelli, and while Adams praises the Italian for putting the study of politics on a realistic scientific basis, he also proceeds to deconstruct his text. He does so by showing that the language Machiavelli uses is merely rhetoric uh, with little basis in reality. That is, it's more persuasion than proof by an author who gives us metaphors when we ask for evidence. <clears throat> Machiavelli sought to flatter the citizens of Florentine by telling them, that they are not to blame for the situation in which they find themselves, one of endless bloody civil wars. Instead, they are the victims of the vicissitudes of misfortune and the inequities of times. 
To make the people feel good about themselves, Machiavelli tried to convince them that the cause of their troubles lie elsewhere than in their own hearts and souls. Quote, it is very provoking to read these continuing continual imputations to fortune made by Machiavelli of events which he knew very well were the effects of secret intrigue. The Italian philosopher, quote, would have been much better advised had he imputed all these evils to the true cause, an imperfect, unbalanced constitution of government. Machiavelli is deceiving himself, as well as Italy's citizens, with his pious exhortations of patriotism and virtue. Quote, one is astonished at the reflections of Machiavelli, such as the spirit of patriotism among them in those days, that they cheerfully gave up their private interests for the pursuit of public good, when every page of history shows that the public was sacrificed every day by all parties to private interests, friendships, and enmities. Long interest in the riddle of motivation, Adams questioned whether we can understand why people do what they do based on the language they use and the reasons they provide. To deconstruct how language, excuse me, to demonstrate how language can contradict itself and to show how it functions to conceal more than it reveals is to deconstruct it. The ninth thesis is the primacy of the executive. And I have a long section here, but I'll just, I'll just say that of all the founding fathers, in fact, many of the thinkers of the whole 18th century enlightenment, Adams was the only one to anticipate that the most important a political institution in the modern world, at least in America, will be the presidency. Um, and um, he had all kinds of reasons for this. He believed that uh, the reason republics did not succeed in the past uh, was because they, there was no place for a strong executive office, whether in the Renaissance republics or early Rome or um, and uh, even modern times. Um, and remember the French Revolution tries to get along without an executive until Robespierre uh, presumes power. <clears throat> um, now, my tenth thesis, or Adams's tenth thesis, is, is the human condition. Um, and here he's, again, very prescient and anticipating what's going on in modern thought. Um, today, postmodernists criticize the rational enlightenment of France for its faith in progress, its belief in unanimity at the cost of diversity, and its assumption that the advent of knowledge would constitute an answer to the threat of power. Today, most postmodernists flowering in France or in American universities, particularly in English departments, um, they are, these people aren't aware that the writings of John Adams um, actually foreshadows some of these darker thoughts that have emerged in academic life today. Um, they're unaware that we had our own counter-alignment thanks to John Adams and the Scottish skeptics. Thus, Adams is close to our contemporary postmoderns and sharing their skepticism about progress, seeing diversity as not only inevitable but desirable, and doubting that the rise of knowledge itself suffices to deal with the riddles of power. On the contrary, on the contrary knowledge may only exacerbate the capacity to do wrong as talent is more abused than used. Quote, does not the increase of knowledge in any man increase his emulation and the diffusion of knowledge among men increase their rivalries? Um, now, Adams comes very close to anticipating a number of expressions of modern thought, of Freudianism, existentialism, post-structuralism. Um, 
It is the human condition, to use a phrase coined by Hannah Arendt, where humankind is out of joint with the world. The self is divided into a spray of desires and the will determined by forces beyond itself. Jean-Jacques Rousseau declared, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Adams replied to the philosoph uh, with this premise and arrives at a different conclusion. Man is born alienated, and everywhere he's in society. Whereas Rousseau believed that government could be dispensed with once society returned to harmony of nature, Adams believed that government was indispensable since it was society itself that expresses nature's conflicting tendencies and its restless discontents. Quote, it is weakness rather than wickedness which render men unfit to be trusted with unlimited power. The passions are all unlimited. Nature has left them so they, <clears throat> that they could be bounded, they should be extinct. Although the American Republic was born with the Declaration of Independence, John Adams, John Adams would not be surprised to discover how dependent and interdependent Americans have become. Adams' insights about the social determinants of human behavior, the utter neediness to have the attention of others, at the same time to be preoccupied with the self, presages the thought of many contemporary thinkers. Feuerstein Veblen, who saw the need for recognition displaying itself in conspicuous consumption. Sigmund Freud, <clears throat> who saw one's emotions predetermined by family conditions. David Riesman, who saw the American character sunk in an other-directed conformity. Jean-Paul Sartre, who saw the individual surrendering to the gaze of the other. Christopher Lash, who saw Americans gazing upon themselves in a culture of narcissism. And even the playwright Arthur Miller, who's Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, desperately identifies success with being well-liked. And Adams anticipated all such tendencies in his text, Discourses on Davila. Quote, a desire to be observed, considered, esteemed, praised, beloved, and admired by his fellows is one of the earliest as well as the keenest dispositions discovered in the heart of humankind. Now I want to conclude my talk um, by trying to bring things up to date and showing how uh, absolutely relevant John Adams is to our time. And I want to start with some quotes um, that might seem familiar to you, but I don't think you'll know where they came from. To get rich is glorious, declared the outgoing head of what could well be the most powerful organization in the world. His successor carried on the message, announcing that the organization is mainly, quote, for the rich and powerful. Another high-ranking official explained why. The economic elite loves money, not democracy. One would think that we are listening to the hypes of an American global corporation recruiting graduates from a top business school. Actually, those are the claims of the leaders of the present Chinese Communist Party. <clears throat> Who would ever thought that the country that once threatened the West with a peasant-based Maoist revolution would turn out to be so brazenly bourgeois? Capitalism in China is not simply a desperate economic effort to catch up with the West. It's primarily a social phenomenon where the up-and-coming yuppies engage in conspicuous consumption and like nothing better than to preen before the camera, surrounded by their symbols of success. With this new giddy generation, perks are paraded, possessions photographed, and affluence displayed as public spectacle. As with America, seeing is believing. 
One wonders if such behavior is a temporary phenomena or a permanent reality. Or could it even be part of our human condition that has its beginning in the lower animal world? The nature writer Richard Conniff, observing baboons and peacocks as well as people, insists that such mimetic characteristics go all the way down the evolutionary ladder. Quote, we're generally programmed to be interested in what the rich do. <clears throat> to regard the rich as more deserving of our admiration than democracy itself seems downright un-American. It's also ahistorical for the worship of wealth that now pervades much of the world defies three, three traditions that once invade against it. Marxism protested a cash-driven economy as the alienating medium uh, that distorts human relations. Classical philosophy warned that self-interest undermines civic virtue and public spirit. And biblical authorities admonished that the love of money is the root of all evil and that it's easier for <coughs> a camel to go through an eye of an eagle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But capitalism, defying all three traditions, has tramped almost everywhere, confounding philosophers of all persuasions. There was one thinker, however, who would not have been surprised by our leisure class culture of pomp and waste that has endowed capitalism with its glamour and glitter. He was an American thinker who, as far back as two centuries ago, discerned that we are conditioned to look up and emulate the rich and well-born. John Adams was also became the second president of the United States. And for making such observations in his text, Discourses on Davia, he was accused of being an aristo-monocrat. Adam's offense was to suggest that the same pretentious behavior characteristic of all monarchical regimes would continue under modern republics. Quote, a free people are the most addicted to luxury, he emphasized, since the passion for distinction is universal, compelling us to seek recognition, approbation, the attention of the, republic, the, attention of the public and the eyes of the spectator in a world determined by the language of signs, by what people see and not what they know. Why do men pursue riches, he asked? What is the end of avarice? The answer is not greed, but glare, because riches attract the attention, consideration, and congratulations of mankind. Call it Kodak capitalism, the economics of the visual and the virtual. Adam's antagonist, Thomas Jefferson, believed that the American people would be capable of leading the simple life of virtue and modesty, knowing that but Adams, knowing that the ancient Romans had failed at that ideal, asked Jefferson, will you tell me how to prevent riches from becoming the effects of temperance and industry? Will you tell me how to prevent riches from producing luxury? Will you tell me how to prevent luxury from producing effeminacy, intoxication, extravagance, vice and folly? Jefferson had no answer to Adams' question, nor do com Chinese communist leaders today, or for that matter, American politicians, who do not raise the issue that troubled our Puritan president. <clears throat> what was Adam's solution to the corruptions of wealth and the spectatorial indulgence and decadence that had destroyed so many previous republics? He looked to a strong presidency who would mediate between the rich and the poor, the artful few and the helpless many, while rele relegating educated elites to the upper house Senate, where their talents may be tapped and their temptations tamed. <clears throat> The mania of money could possibly check by the machinery of government. But in 1800, the one-term President Adams was voted out of office due to a collusion between Alexander Hamilton, who loved the circulation of money, 
and Thomas Jefferson, who hated the control of government. Henceforth, America would be left free. <clears throat> America would be left free to face commercial society, and eventually a nation of consumers would embrace mammon and simply go around the eye of the needle without a blush or a blink. <clears throat> America started out in 1800, where China is today, gushing about the glory of wealth. Somehow it's hard to believe that this is what Jesus, Marx, or John Adams had in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Diggins. It's our uh, custom and uh, practice in the Madison program to begin with a period uh, uh, to recognize questions from our students. So graduate students, undergraduates, any high school students or who are here, guests from Rutgers, Ryder, Westminster, any questions? If not, oh, we do have one, yeah, right there. Well, um, first of all, he didn't serve more than one term, which is always a, uh, a bad sign. And he was, uh, thanks to David McAuliffe in his great book, I mean, we almost forgot about John Adams. And, and when McAuliffe started that book, he meant to write on both Jefferson and Adams. And he lost interest in Jefferson and focused totally on Adams. Um, and um, uh, there was, the other part of your question was um, why it was... Um, Oh, the, yeah, the, the, and the other is that American history is written from a liberal perspective. And, um, and, and, and most Americans think that John Adams could not possibly hold the shoes of Thomas Jefferson. Um, and it's Jefferson that believed in human rights, he believed in equality, um, and, um, and Jefferson did write beautifully. He was a beautiful prose writer. Um, uh, but even Jefferson admits Jefferson was not a good speaker. So when it came to um, arguing for independence from England, it was Adams who made the speeches at the Continental Congress. Um, but in American history, the writing, the perspective of its being written is that the good guys are Jefferson and Andrew Jackson and, and 20th century Democrats like Franklin Roosevelt. And the bad guys are the Federalists. Now, the, the classic book on this is by... Vernon Parrington. It's a three-volume book called Main Currents in American Thought. He says that everything bad in America starts with the Calvinists, and it moves up through through um, John Adams, the Federalist, Alexander Hamilton, because they both the Adams believed in very skeptical, and, and, and Hamilton believed in the coming of commercial markets, so forth. And then the, the, the worst person is Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who believe in original sin, and the, the good guys are Jefferson, who didn't believe in original sin. I believe in the goodness of human people, and uh, Walt Whitman and um, and Andrew Jackson, um, and um, and Lincoln falls in between, because Lincoln did have a sense of sin. He was realistic, skeptical. Uh, at the same time, he was pro commerce, pro railroads, and, and economic development. And Parrington doesn't know how to handle Lincoln, um, but. Um, High school textbooks for years were written from this 
Jeffersonian point of view. Um, and, uh, and, and the accusations that I mentioned at the outset about Adams having Marcus leanings, being an elitist Islamic, that they're still there in popular writings in American history. Okay. Uh, any other student questions before we open it generally? Students want to speak up? All right, the floor is open. Professor Denise. Uh, yeah, right. uh, uh, actually, my question follows very much on those remarks. You talked about um, Adam's prescience as anticipation of some contemporary trends like postmodernism, Freudism, and deconstructionism. The fact that he, he recognizes uh, our dividedness, the sense of alienation we have, um, that there's no correspondence between words and the things that we used to describe, and uh, a sense of inescapability of the human sinfulness, original sin. This doesn't sound to me so much like anticipation of contemporary postmodernism as it does really good articulation of classic Calvinism, however. Uh, and indeed, his source of, of the Scottish Enlightenment would suggest that that's a clear path to that Calvinism and really fundamentally Augustinianism. So I'm wondering how it is that you want to suggest that this is really more anticipatory than it is in some ways uh, a, a sort of good fundamental understanding of a, a tradition uh, that you know, Bernard Harrington, among others, condemns. Um, and in this sense, actually, it suggests less of an anticipation of postmodernism than itself an implicit critique of that. Because uh, it seems to me that postmodernism, while taking some of this Calvinist tradition, uh, also suggests that one can push that far enough. And if we can deconstruct language far enough, we can actually overcome our alienation. As the co-argument at one point, we could actually deconstruct the human subject itself. So it seems to me Adams actually is more of a potential critic of those uh, trends that you suggest he anticipates rather than uh, in some ways complicit in their development? Well, you, you, you could very well be right, it, it, and you're absolutely right about the, uh, that Adams gets these insights from um, uh, Augustine and, and uh, even Pascal and other thinkers. Uh, um, and uh, what, what I try to say is when friends of mine, I used to, years ago I used to teach at Irvine, it was full of deconstruction, all the French people like Jacques Derrida were coming over. I would listen to it and it would sound familiar and um, and then I would tell my colleagues, well, I don't have to go to these lectures, I already know that. I said, how do you know? And I said, well, John Adams said that. And, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and But you're right that uh, John Adams is very careful though. Uh, he's not reckless and irresponsible about um, the um, his skepticism toward the possibilities of knowledge. I agree with you there. Is there evidence when you mentioned his reading of Augustine and Pascal? Is there evidence that he is reading these these authors? Yeah. Uh, Pascal, there is. Yeah, the Meditation. Um, August, the, the man to check about Augustine would be Perry Miller. I mean, I, yeah. Yes, you got a question up there, sir. Go right ahead. Uh, alien and sedition. Two-part question. Uh, what is the evidence that? Uh, Adams opposed them, and the second part, assuming he did oppose them, why did he sign them? Did I say he opposed them? I, I, I think he did. He said he opposed them. He signed them, although he opposed them. I, I, well, maybe that was that was criticism, but, but he signed them. I think I meant to say his heart wasn't in it, and he didn't go out of his way to enforce them. Um, and... Uh, and there were some characters, though, his wife really wanted to see slapped in jail, like James Callender. Um, and, and, and some people were put in the slammer for several months. Uh, but his Secretary of State Pickering and his cabinet really wanted to use these to go after the Federalist Party, and Adams did not. 
You mean he signed them because his wife wanted? Well, he signed the legislation. I, I, in, in my book, I say each presidency has a black, a black spot with Ronald Reagan, Sierra Ryan Concord Fair, and, and uh, with Franklin Roosevelt just stacking the Supreme Court. And so that each president has an episode they, they deeply regret. And with John Adams, it's the alien sedition. Uh, yes, you, sir, over here. Um, points one six, at least, sound very much like Madison to me. Um, so I'm wondering whether that entity you referred to in the beginning between, between them um, had an intellectual basis or was just personal political. And then secondly, the eighth point about, about the, uh, I mean, one side of this deconstructive language, the other side of it is that the difficulty of penetrating to reality and the ease with which words can confuse our or construct our images of reality. That would, I'm guessing, have potential sources in the accusatory, um, slanderous politics of the time that you mentioned. But did it have any uh, intellectual sources? Could, could people hear in the back? The question is that did Adams' skepticism about language and political rhetoric, did that evolve from the nature of politics at the time? Or did it come from intellectual sources? Probably a bit of both. Um, uh, he does, the man he drew upon was David Hume, who felt that knowledge was very problematic um, and that uh, uh, people are moved more by impressions than by access to reality. And, and even before he became president, before he held power, Adams wrote in his early text how uh, it's in the nature of politics for people to fall out among themselves, become suspicious, and engage in a, um, a tactic of accusation and aspersion. That is, he felt that was in the nature of politics. And, that, and that's kind of, um, I don't know if it's rare, but, but, but I was brought up, I wasn't brought up, but in recent years, people who came out of the 60s that, who were a generation after me, when they became professors, that's all they talked about politics as a noble link. That is, they, they studied Hannah Arendt and they studied Sheldon Rowland at Princeton when he taught here, and that politics was a noble vocation and it brought out the best of people. And of course, this does go back to Aristotle and so forth. And uh, I just thought, Jason, American history, politics, this is not, not that uh, kind of a game. <laughs> Dr. Neely? Tocqueville believed that uh, Christianity was alive and well in America and that it provided a countervailing force to the spirit of capitalism here, the spirit of capitalist acquisition and uh, status seeking and, 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 and so on. So there was a tension in America between uh, the commercial capitalist spirit and the, the still very uh, much alive Christian spirit. I'm wondering, was, was uh, Adams uh, much more skeptical about the capacity of religion to sort of restrain uh, these desires uh, for acquisition and uh, social status and so on than, than Tocqueville? He was, and I think Tocqueville himself was, because there's a passage that conservatives like to talk about, if, if the family tie breaks and if belief in God falters and so forth. And, and, then, and then three pages later, Tocqueville says, but nothing can stand in the way of the market. Uh, uh, so was very, he was very troubled. He believed, you're right, he said there was a tension between commerce and Christianity, and he hoped that Christianity would prevail, but he was troubled that it might not. 
Oh, was, was Adams just general, in, in general believed that uh, religion was uh, sort of a, a weak force here against this, uh, you know, this storm of uh, uh, capitalist acquisitiveness? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and as I mentioned, you didn't see the prosenetic, because in theory, the prosenetic was a very, it meant that early capitalism was a, uh, um, a, a challenge of moral excellence. That is, you're not to spend your money, you're not to engage in luxury and indulgence, you're to save. And that's where savings comes from in terms of investment. Um, and, uh, and, and above all, you're to, to work hard. And even though you work hard, you never know the state of your soul. You're always in a state of doubt about salvation. And that anxiety compels you to work even harder. And uh, <laughs> Max Weber felt that this was the genius of America. But he knew that that would, that would fade away because people eventually um, um, forget work and they just move on toward wealth. I remember once asking John Kenneth Galbraith, the, the economist, I said, um, I said, I said, Weber talked about the present work ethic as being Western European coming from Calvinism. But where is it in Japan? Where does the work ethic come from in Japan? And, uh, and Galbraith looked at me with a smile. He said, well, it's going now because they have golf courses there. Professor <laughs> <laughs> Gerhardt. I got a two-part question. I don't think they're related, but maybe you can tell me if they are. Speak up one second. Period. I'm sorry. Two-part question. I don't think they're related, but he's going to tell me if they are. Um, the first is the role of the Constitution and law. Uh, how does law figure into all this? Is, is the Constitution the most important part of it? Or what's going to make the Constitution work, in your view, with respect to Adam? The second question, the second part, is... Um, what was your biggest surprise of doing work like this? As you went into it, what was the thing that surprised you the most that you discovered out of you didn't know before? Um, well, I kind of, to go to your last question, I kind of knew all this about Adams for many years of teaching him. And uh, it was just by a fluke that I wrote this book because um, I won't go into that. But um, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the other question, um, and by the way, the, what I lectured from today is coming out in the fall and a uh, a portable Penguin Viking, uh, Adam's reader, that'll be out in the fall. Right? Um, but Adams didn't pay too much attention to the role of the Supreme Court uh, in terms of the Constitution. And, um, uh, and, uh, and you know, there's a passage in, that he would agree with in Madison and the Federalists about uh, uh, can't we count upon people obeying law? And Madison replies, uh, only if, um, if America... Uh, would become what Plato hoped for, a nation of philosophers. Would, could we count people obeying the law? Um, and so they felt that people uh, would not on their own obey the law unless uh, they were um, fearful of being punished by disobeying the law. The, 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 um, the institution that Adams looked to that would um, uh, save America was the presidency. Uh, he really he believed in leadership. Um, and that's another thing that's... Uh, Hard to write about. Uh, that is, it's it's not really given much um, theoretical weight and political theory and intellectual history. That is leadership. It's regarded almost as a fascist notion. So, so are, the are the midnight judges just a kind of a personal res response to Jefferson, or how do how do the, the, the appointment of Marshall and others at the end of the uh, at his administration figure into his political philosophy? Is that just patronage? 
that's a good question. I don't really have the details on that. I know that the recent scholars say it's been over-exaggerated that there are that many appointments and so forth. And he did, he did believe in appointing uh, people of other points of view. And Marshall, and he didn't have the same points of view about the Alien Sedition Acts and other things. So, um, and that was a very fortunate appointment of Marshall. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, if I could follow up, Mike's other question. Uh, now, there's a line uh, of Adams about uh, how this Constitution is a Constitution made for a moral and religious people and will do for no other. That line would suggest that he's counting on something other than the enforcement of the law or the fear of punishment to do essential work in this particular Constitution because it's respectful of liberty. How do you, There's how do you a line that's, what was the first one? Adams is quoted as saying that uh, this is a constitution that will do for moral and religious people and won't serve for, for any other. For immoral? For any other. Won't, won't, it's, it, this is a constitution for a moral and religious people, people who are moral and religious and will not serve for any other type of people. You know, I've seen that quoted uh, by some friends of yours, but I... <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> But I haven't seen it. But it would be, if it's true, it would be inconsistent with this idea that we really are dependent on the enforcement of That's right. I mean, if people are moral, then why we need a constitutional law? Yeah. Uh, let's see. There. Yes, you, man. Did you want to come in on this? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know whether, and I might be a question. Can you speak up? Revise this thing every twenty years or so. Now, how would that kind of an idea struck Adams? Maybe that. Yeah. Well, I'm just just a speculation. I imagine Adams running back to his classic books and saying, "Well, there were gay relationships back in ancient Greece." I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Professor Morris. I'd like to ask another uh, constitutional question, but it has to do with the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which I understand was pretty much. Uh, the sole product of Adams. So my question is, how how much of Adams's mind and his mind as a political philosopher do you think is revealed in that Constitution? And well, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I've never really studied that Constitution. I, I'm, just, I'm just impressed that he comes back from Europe when he's negotiating, trying to negotiate a peace treaty uh, over in Paris and Holland, trying to raise money in Holland for the American Revolution, and he comes back and takes the time to write that Constitution. The details of it, of which though I know very little, other than he, he does point to it as a model of, of balance. Um, he believed that a constitutional system had to have balances, and, and it was also called mixed government, uh, and that the, the, the a government should always reflect the nature of society, and American society is going to be mixed. 
and it had to have balanced chambers in order to reflect that mixture. Now, when Tocqueville comes to America, he says, I regard a mixed government as a delusion. That, that in, a, in any society, if there are really mixed social orders that are antagonistic with one another, that government will either fall apart or lead to a revolution. And that the reason America worked was that we didn't have these mixed elements, at least incompatibly mixed elements that Adams thought we had. Adams and the Federalist authors all believe, all thought that we had to have a constitution to deal with social conflict. But the constitution worked because the conflict wasn't there. The, the great book on this is by Louis Hart. It's called The Liberal Tradition of America. Yeah. Uh, Professor Malcolm? Yes, so my question actually is constitutional too. It goes to Joyce, can you speak about, up so they yeah. About the class conflict. Um, as I understood it, Adams wanted the Senate to be as much like the House of Lords as possible. And, um, and I think that might be part of the accusation for the elitism. And the Senate was, uh, in the Constitution, a very powerful body. Uh, so I was surprised at your comment that he thought that that would be a, a safe place to put the rich. Well, then, yeah, I mean, he, he um, um, the word he used was a, a polite ostracism. That is, that is, we'll take the educated people with Harvard degrees and PhDs and rich, and put them in the Senate where they can't do that much damage. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and we can, we can keep guard on their activities. And, and, uh, and uh, let's see, he says, like, exploit their virtues and guard against their vices or something like that. And um, now the irony is, as I point out in my book, is that the Jefferson and all the other people and the Southerners uh, were against the upper house Senate. And yet today in politics, it's precisely the small, the agricultural rural states have power because of the Senate. Uh, and, and this is an unintended legacy of Jefferson. Yes, up there. Yeah. Um, lately, I've been doing some reading about William Howard Taft's decision in the uh, Myers case from, I think, 1926. And in that, uh, he looks at the question of what executive power meant in the Constitution uh, relative to um, how the framers uh, understood executive power under uh, King George. And I'm wondering, since you say that John Adams uh, thought so thought the presidency was so important, how he understood the American president, uh, American president's executive power to perhaps be different than the king's executive power? Um, as you know, in the Constitution and in the Federalist Papers, there's very little um, devoted to what the office of the executive should do other than execute the laws. Um, and um, uh, the question you're asking is a good one. I, don't think that Adams is saying that uh, uh, that the American presidency should ape the mannerisms of British royalty. Uh, he does talk about the tribunes in Roman times, um, but um, he knows that the presidency is going to be a modern office, um, and uh, he doesn't even advocate kind of uh, a president who's going to initiate legislation and establish um, uh, a platform. Uh, and uh, move Congress one way or the other to pass his laws. Uh, his idea of a, a, a president is a mediator. That is, there are always going to be power, power elements struggling against one another, and the president's role is to mediate um, for the sake of justice and the public good. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes, Professor Jones? Yeah. Um, a, a word you didn't, I don't, think, I don't think you used in your talk, but I think would be, came out of the, uh, the argument you were making is conservatism. Right? That is, um, and your Adams, right, has a Christianity that emphasizes sin more than salvation, that emphasizes pride more than reason. And I, I take, at least I take those to be the central <coughs> component of a kind of conservative mood. The other thing you mentioned was the fear that um, the, the great danger in a constitution such as ours would be domination by the money um, over those without. And in a way, combining these um, is also kind of conservatism, you might argue, as a powerful critique of what goes by the name conservatism today. Could you assess what, um, what you might consider to be an Adamsian critique of the philosophy that goes by the name conservatism in modern American politics? Um, well, I, I was just reading this morning Peggy Noonan's book on Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry. Peggy Noonan, she was Reagan's speechwriter, and she told um, these people that she's writing a book, and, uh, and they, there was no response. So she told this man that there was no response. He says, well, that, um, um, he says, uh, if you said that to Democrats, they're interested in ideas, they'd have a response. If you said that to conservatives, they're interested in ideas, they'd have a response. If you said it to Republicans, there'd be no response because they're only interested in money. <laughs> I, 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 today, um, uh, politics is, is all about money raising, as you know, fundraising. And it's all about, it's also, uh, there's a kind of celebrity element in it, too. Uh, I mean, John Adams, in a way, predicted Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because he does have passages, and when when Thomas Jefferson says to Adams, "Can't we have a natural aristocracy?" and Adams replies, "There's no such thing. All aristocracies are artificial, and and whoever can command attention, because he or she has looks and glamour and oratorial ability and presence and so forth." He says, "That's my idea of an aristocrat, a person who could command attention and command a number of votes." Um, and um, we ha we've had this in American politics, and it is all about images, um, and it's all about uh, manipulation, manipulation. It's all about time, which costs money. Um, and um, now, I think you're asking: is, is today is there a conservative who come close to the values that John Adams held? Is that what you're asking? Well, or, or what would the critique um, of a kind of Adamsian kind of perspective be of what goes by the name of conservatism? modern political thought and practice? Um, possibly he's no longer alive. Well, he wasn't in politics. But I was thinking of the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, but um, uh, there were leaders in the Senate 30 years ago who, who just quit politics because it all became uh, money-raising. And uh, those are the kind of people that Adams, I think, would admire. Um, so if that answers your question. How much of the culprit there is TV? Just the, the fact that you've got to be good on TV to be elected to anything, and it costs a lot of money to be on TV. Mm -hmm. What your question? Is, 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 that, is, TV, is TV the decisive? According to the, you know, the story you sometimes hear, it was the 1960 election that elevated right. television yeah. to a central place in choosing presidents in particular. So. It's just the world different well, there, after TV. There is that old story that those people who heard the debates between Nixon and Kennedy on the radio thought Nixon won. 
And then the people went back and watched the replay on television. They said, no, Kennedy. So, but uh, the, the other thing that's bringing money has brought money is, is that politics has become democratized. That is, in, in my day, in the 50s, there was no such thing as state primaries. Uh, and uh, the parties chose who's going to run for the presidency. Now all the candidates have to scramble through these states, and all that takes money. And, and so the, 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 the effort of the Democratic left to reform politics, make it more open and spontaneous to the people, has also made it require more money. Okay. Yes, you, sir. Go ahead. I've always been bothered by the point of fact that the Constitution says very clearly old men are created equal. I also am aware that uh, Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin, 1803 or something like that, was a driving force to encourage the maintenance of slavery in the South because of the importance of that business. I also know that Washington had 600 slaves and had freed a number of those. I also know Jefferson had slaves and did not free them. I don't, don't hear anything about Adams, who's from Boston. This was not a slaveholder. This was not a slave state. Where did he stand on this issue? In fact, where did the founding fathers stand on that issue before the Whitney's cotton tree was invented? Was it that important an industry business that they insisted upon maintaining slavery? What, what, what's the moral issue here? What's the basis for not? Taking on the issue of slavery. Well, the first time they could have taken on was when they were drafting the Constitution. Um, and um, in my early part of my paper, I, um, um, I skipped over this, but John Adams almost came close to writing the Declaration of Independence. That he and he has a uh, Jefferson says, "You do it." And Adams says, "No, you do it." It goes back and forth, and then. Uh, Jefferson says, why, why do you want me to do it? Adams gives him reasons about you're a better writer, you're from Virginia, and so forth. And then I suggest, what if Adams had written it? And, uh, uh, and uh, he would have retained the phrase, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, but he might have add, added, to be happy, one had to be free, and then questioned slavery. But the South would not have ratified the Constitution. So every time someone brought up the issue of slavery, uh, it was... It was uh, uh, marginalized because of the necessity of getting the Constitution ratified. Then, and later in American history, there was what was called the gag rule. Uh, you couldn't bring it up in Congress. It was a subject of slavery. And um, it was the, um, the Jeffersonian Democrats, the Jacksonians, who stood for that. And it was the Adams family in Massachusetts who fought against it. John Quincy Adams fought against the gag rule. And he defended the blacks in the Amistad case, the blacks who took over their ship and so forth. So um, anti-slavery was strong in the Calvinist New England states. Um, and, and as you said, John Adams, the father himself, was a member of the Abolitionist right. Society. Right. Uh, I saw a hand. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Adams, I believe, until Herbert Hoover was the longest living ex-president. Did he see a and Interestingly, he was the first press sitting president to lose an election. He left very gracefully, even if it wasn't four in the morning. Did he see a special role for the ex-president in the country? I don't think so. I remember um, he thought of writing his memoirs, and then he, he felt he was his notes are here so disorganized, so he never got around to that. Um, but he didn't think of like Jimmy Carter opening up a peace institute. Or, is that what you're getting at? Uh, well, I, um, he was one of the founding fathers. Right. I mean, 
clearly you know, had this correspondence with Jefferson. Both experts. It's been very valuable right, right. to posterity. Um, and he could have been a source of faction. Well, he, he turned against his own party because his party, the Federalist Party, uh, wanted to, some of them wanted to succeed from the Union when the Jefferson imposed a tariff on New England during the, with the forthcoming War of 1812. It was a, it was a New England states that first advocated secession before the South did later on. Jack, was this the Hartford Convention? The Hartford Convention, and and John Adams turns against that, as does his son. They they, they remain nationalists rather than regionalists. Uh, the other thing I should mention is uh, these people didn't really like politics. Um, they had to be dragged into it, uh, and Washington was asked, "Would you come back again, and run for office?" He said, "I would come back to." Uh, Offices, so I was going to my graveyard or something. <laughs> uh, yes, Professor Sheen. Yes, thank you. Um, I'd like to follow up on your comments on balanced government. Um, as an essential part of Adams' political philosophy, if I understand Adams correctly, it's the idea not of a balance like a scale, but of a three part balance so that you have the few versus the many and both houses of the, uh, the two houses of the legislature. And then when those are in balance, uh, that leaves the executive uh, as the position that essentially moves government, which was a theory that supposedly the English Constitution was based on, though they were based on, of course, corporate powers, and a way that Adams um, defends himself and his republicanism, that he is not in favor of doing it on that kind of basis of wealth requirements and so on. Uh, if Adams is to be praised for his intellect and his political understanding, I want, because that's what, it's, it's that theory in particular that the Republicans in the 1790s, Jefferson, Madison, and others, are really opposed to because they see that as anti-Republican. Right. Even if it's not hereditary orders, it mimics that, that English system of conflict and rivalry that really doesn't bring the will of the greatest body of citizens through as much as it creates an equilibrium in government that leaves the executive power uh, more free to move and direct government. Um, but if Adam's intellect and his political understanding is praised, my question is, would we have been better off if Adam's view of that had carried the day and let me push that a little bit further. Today going on in the uh, race for the um, Democratic presidential candidate, we have someone like John Adams, who's talking about two Americas, um, and wants us to start thinking about politics in, in terms of a sort of modified class interest uh, view of, of how American society is in practice. Uh, and Adams' view is sort of a two-class interests and conflicts, though perhaps not simply on the same basis. Should we, is that the lens that we should uh, see our society in so that we can develop the best way to go about policy making and decision making in America? Or were Adam's critics right that that is actually detrimental to the idea of making one people? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't begin to know how to uh, you use the word someone saying that America is divided between the rich and the poor today, and you said John Adams. Did you mean John Kerry? John Adams. 
Oh, John Andrews, excuse me. Oh, oh, oh. But that's, a, that's been going on in American politics uh, for centuries, this saying that we're a divided country. I don't think there's anything fresh there. Um, as to what items could throw, what kind of light you could throw on where we are today, um, I'm not so sure in terms of political institutions, but he certainly would be helpful in um, excoriating uh, the cult of wealth. Mr. Tomkin? I'd like to keep my questions brief. The statement was made before about like, we're going to create equal. Unfortunately, that's in our declaration, not in the Constitution. You believe that Adams, when he was now signing the Constitution, allowed that they put in us words that in the 12th year of our independence, that he felt organically the Constitution was connected, therefore, to the principles of the Declaration. Also, I think in the first draft of the Declaration, when Jefferson wrote, he was condemning slavery. Because of course, and I've seen the document. That's number one. Number two, in the power elite that exists today, should we reconsider the 17th Amendment and go back to not only having a popular election, but not necessarily going back to the Abbott principle, getting away from it? It's, it's a house of millionaires. Hmm. Yeah, the first one about the all men are created equal is, is in the Declaration of the Constitution. Um, uh, very few people paid attention to those phrases in writing the Constitution. The idea of equality is not there. Um, or the idea of self-evident truths are not in the Constitution. Um, and um, and the, the one man who does go back to the Declaration though, is Abraham Lincoln. He, fe he feels that's the sheet anger of the American Republic. Uh, everything that's good about America begins with the Declaration. Um, and the irony is that um, there's nothing you could do with the Declaration of Independence without the Constitution. That is, to fulfill the ideals of equality, such in our time, such as uh, uh, civil rights and women's rights and ethnic minorities and the cause of labor, all requires constitutional law. Um, and Jefferson is no help here. There's a book by Jefferson, on Jefferson, by Joseph Ellis called The American Sphinx. And he says, if you want to find out what America should do about uh, civil rights, about women, minorities, about the environment, about education, about pollution, it goes, hold this, you won't find anything in Jefferson. I mean, he's, it's just not there, because he didn't believe in the role of government at all, particularly the national government. Uh, yes, Professor Vittori. Could you speak a little bit about uh, Adam's view of the role of religion in government? I mean, he obviously had a very strong notion of civic virtue, and if I remember correctly, uh, actually talked about religion um, against the civic virtue when writing the Massachusetts Constitution. Um, since the, the founding, we, we've come to the notion very largely because references to Jefferson's work of separation of church and state. Um, in my sense, that's not very much uh, the view of Adams. Could you speak to that? Well, he, he didn't believe in civic virtue. He didn't believe that it existed. As people do not practice it, it exists in language. But if you look through history, uh, republics uh, that try to live by civic virtue fall apart into factions and, and uh, sink into the ocean. So, uh, as to religion, um, he, um, just as he felt that people do not live up to civic ideals, he felt that people, by and large, do not live up to religious ideals. Um, so uh, 
Adams is not the person you go to to try to make a case for religion in American life. I don't think you get that from Adams. You could get it. You could get it from Abraham Lincoln, but it's religion in a scolding sense. He reminds Americans how, how sinful they are, not how good they are. And and the uh, second inaugural address, he says, we're having this bloody civil war. It's God's ways of punishing us for years of slavery. And um, and um, Jimmy Carter once used to say. I want to give you a government as good as the people are. This is not thinking of the Lincoln founding fathers. <laughs> well, we have time just for one more. Who would like to close us up? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, this might be a fitting way to close up anyway. Uh, the ratings of the presidents seem to depend on the times that the president's serving as probably as well as who's actually rating them, historian is rating them, uh, the times seem to change. And for instance, the uh, ratings of Kennedy probably have been downgraded quite a bit in recent years, while Truman probably has been upgraded quite a bit in there. Now, any changes in Adams ratings, or do you perceive any? Well, the latest I heard, it was a public opinion poll, and it kind of <laughs> struck me. Uh, it was that the, the three leading people in the mind of the public are Lincoln, uh, Kennedy, and Reagan, which I find interesting. And and, um, um, and I think the Reagan part is maybe a younger generation of conservatives, um, and Kennedy probably uh, older liberals, and then Lincoln, of course, remains steadily the number one president. But when the, when the poll is taken of historians, it comes out again Lincoln first, and then I think Washington Jefferson second, um, and then um, maybe Andrew Jackson and Theodore Roosevelt. No, Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was up there with the first three or four, and then it's Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson. And uh, but 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 uh, historians have their own preferences based on what they think is knowledge of who performed well um, years ago. And um, uh, and history has been written from a kind of New Deal liberal point of view. So poor old Herbert Hoover and Calvin Coolidge don't get much acknowledgement. Um, and um, but I'm um, I'm just starting a book on Ronald Reagan, and I'm thinking, I wonder when he will get recognition because um, he did more than anyone else in the second term uh, of his administration <clears throat> to bring the Cold War to an end, um, and he did it without listening to his advisors. He turned away from his advisors. In fact, he fired them, some of them, and then now they're working for Bush, and Bush is listening to them. Uh, <laughs> in any case, it was quite remarkable, because I grew up thinking the Cold War was here forever, and I thought my children would live under the cloud of uh, nuclear holocaust, and, uh, and um, Reagan just said to Gorbachev, he's, he, he's in this conference in Geneva by the lakeside, he says, let's go take a walk, and they go down by the pool room, and he says to them, let's not listen to our bureaucracies. Uh, let's just you and I negotiate one-to-one. -one. And um, it, it's just quite, re quite remarkable. I mean, uh, uh, that, um, that history, that, that communism comes into existence in 1917 by virtue of the actions of one man, that is Lenin, <coughs> it goes out of existence in uh, 18, 19, 
80s uh, by the actions of one man, Mikhail Gorbachev, with the help of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, uh, that's, that's my idea of leadership. Jack, on the Adams question, though, and this, this idea that presidents get reevaluated, is it your sense that David McCulloch's book and your own work, the, the, the work that's now coming out that's more positive for Adams, <coughs> is affecting his the estimation in which he's held by historians? Has that, has that changed any minds at all? Well, um, I, I, I would hope so. I hope so. But I gave a talk at the Library of Congress, and Kevin Phillips, uh, whose new book is leading uh, his his. He has a new book on uh, politics today, but his previous book was on Wayne McKinley. And uh, and I gave my talk, and then he got and gave his talk, and McKinley looked over and he says, you know, John Adams was nothing. He was just nothing. So, <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, take this uh, opportunity to uh, uh, thank Professor Diggins for a wonderful uh, lecture and spending President's Day uh, with us. He could have been in many other places and we're very glad that we had him here today. Again, I'll remind you, you can buy autographed copies of the book uh, in the Macabre uh, bookstore. Uh, we're going to have a reception in Professor Diggins's honor uh, and you're all invited just out here in the uh, hallway after this lecture. Uh, but before thanking him, let me just announce one event, which is our next event Wednesday, uh, day after tomorrow, 12.30 in Bobes Hall, Professor Colleen Sheehan will be giving a seminar uh, on Madison versus Hamilton. So uh, 12.30, Wednesday, uh, Bobes Hall, uh, there's a little lunch, Sir Professor Colleen Sheehan. So please join me in thanking Professor Thompson.